0: Good morning, everyone. It's definitely good to see everybody again this week. I hope you had a great week pursuing the Lord and sharing Him with others, growing in your knowledge of Him. We move on to Acts chapter 17. As we make our way through the book of Acts, it seems like opposition to the gospel becomes more and more intense. If we didn't know the end of the story, we could almost begin to think that the gospel would come to an end and it wouldn't advance. Have you noticed that almost every time there's a victory, the believers hit a brick wall? They face opposition that appears to slow down the progress of the gospel in that area, and they're moved on. But then a new opening is given, and the disciples bring good news to another group of people, only to run into another brick wall that causes them to stop ministering in that area. Yet again, they turn in another direction and the gospel advances. Think back over the trip through the book of Acts that we've taken. There was the resurrection appearances of Jesus and he departs and the disciples stand there baffled at Jesus' departure and didn't appear to be very confident as they hid up in the upper room However, the next thing we know, bursting forth is Pentecost and the arrival of the Spirit and the New Covenant beginning, but almost immediately opposition arises to the, from the Jewish leaders. They wanted the name of Jesus forgotten and they began to say, stop. However, again, the gospel advances and more are added to the church from Jews outside of Jerusalem. Some of the Hellenistic Jews come to Christ. But then the church leaders are beaten and imprisoned and it appears stop. However, the church still grows. As opposition arises within the church, even sin like Ananias and Sapphira throw cold water on the flames of the church. Yet once again, the church has a fear of God and it continues to grow. Next we saw that Stephen was ruthlessly killed and a great persecution breaks forth in Jerusalem causing the gospel's advancement in Jerusalem to stop. However again this doesn't stop the advancement of the gospel. It goes out as the people flee. People even Gentiles outside Jerusalem begin to embrace the gospel. Before we know it persecution is turned in again. One of The proponents of persecution, however, turns to Christ, Apostle Paul, and becomes one of uh, the greatest voices of the gospel. However, again, more persecution. Paul runs, and the gospel spreads to Antioch. I love how this is unfolding. Do you see it? Every time you think it's going to stop, it's almost like, nope, here's an angle. Stop. Here's an angle. Stop. Here's another angle. That's how God works, folks. That's what we're seeing throughout the book of Acts. The gospel advances despite opposition. Everywhere we go, all the time, the gospel is advancing. No matter what, God's kingdom is being established. He is showing off his king and more are being added to his kingdom that will one day reign here on the earth. The gospel advances, however, with a price. God's word is breaking into the dark world, but the dark world often doesn't want anything to do with it. Jesus had told his disciples that they needed to be so committed to him that the world was small to them. It didn't matter. They had to love him more than even their own life. And the book of Acts is revealing this is the way of eternal life. It involves trials, and pains, and persecution, conflicts, disagreements, and pitfalls. But the genuine believer shines forth because the followers of Christ persevere through all dangers and snares. I'm more and more convinced that one of the greatest uh, examples and demonstrations of God's grace is the perseverance of the believer's. That we persevere when trials come, when persecution happens, when arguments break out. We keep going. We keep our eyes on Christ and we love him till the end because we have no other place to go. We stay on that path. The believer expects trials. Why? Because we know that he uses trials to advance his gospel in different ways. Today we will see once again how the gospel advances despite opposition. We see the gospel is revealed in 1 through 4 in Thessalonica. And then the gospel is resisted again in 5 through 9. We start with the gospel is revealed. First we look at the setting for the gospel is revealed. The setting. Again, the gospel is revealed when disciples of Jesus proclaim King Jesus. These ambassadors for Jesus stepped up and represented their king in all kinds of circumstances and proclaimed him no matter what. So the setting for the gospel to be revealed included the ambassadors who were beaten and weary travelers. Remember what had happened or what had just happened to Paul and Silas and the others in Philippi they had traveled first hundreds of miles 500 miles and then 200 miles by boat to get there only to find a city dominated by paganism they were very few there were very few in this city that had a biblical worldview or an understanding of the scriptures however god used these missionaries to plant a church with a few families lydia and her household the jailer and his household and possibly the slave girl. And the mission work had ended in Philippi after two of the missionaries were ruthlessly beaten and the magistrate come out and say, will you please leave our city? And they do. So again, we see a church is planted, a fledgling church, a small church is planted, and then the ministry stops and they're told to go. Their experience and bold proclamation of the gospel had had been used to start the church... With Lydia and her household. And if it wasn't for the book of Philippi or Philippians. The book to the Philippians. We wouldn't know that the church survived, would we? We would, If we were reading only Acts, we would say, huh, I wonder if they made it. I wonder if Lydia and the jailer, and this was legit. I mean, did they leave Philippi? Because there was persecution there. We know from Philippians it did. It thrived. Then they had to depart for a new city. We come to a new section. They move from Philippi all the way to Thessalonica. That's a 100-mile trip, a, a, over a 100-mile trip, another two days by walking. Paul describes, well, the missionaries' arrival to the Thessalonica church plant in Thessalonians, the book to the Thessalonians. And so we're going to be kind of jumping back and forth to that. But So take your... You're going to need to put your hand or your marker over in Thessalonians, so we're going to be jumping back and forth as we look through this passage. The reality was is that they had come from on a uh, after being beaten. They obviously were not in the best physical shape, in the sense that they had been suffering under the hands of the beatings of the rods, while they had been uh, uh, encouraged by the jailer and. Treated their wounds, they still were had walked 100 miles with scars and difficulties. I can't imagine what this would be like. But Paul gives us a little glimpse of this in First Thessalonians 2. Notice, he talks about his arrival. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So in a worldly sense, the setting wasn't really ideal. They had taken a beating and they had traveled a long way and now they are at a new city with new people. But the Lord worked through his ambassadors, as we will see. Next, the ambassadors followed their regular pattern of ministry. Notice in chapter 17, verse 1, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them. As we see here, the missionaries were consistent in their practice. They maintained the pattern of starting with the Jews in the synagogue when they arrived in a new city. Remember, they went down by the riverside because there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, but they were looking for those people, those God-fearers or the Jews that were there. They did the same thing here when they got into Thessalonica. In this case, it was the pattern that the Lord had established to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. That's what we've seen throughout the book of Acts, haven't we? To the Jew first, then the Gentile. Throughout Acts, we see Paul and the missionaries follow this custom or pattern of reaching out to those who had at least a biblical foundation first. The Old Testament foundation, the Jews. This meant they went to God's children of the covenant first. Now, as we see over and over in Acts, the majority of the Jews rejected the message of the gospel, right? But Paul, as stated in Romans 11, says they were his remnant. And there was a remnant within the Jews. So he always went there. To go to the Jews first as a custom was not the easy road by any means for the missionaries i the more I think on this, the more it uh, really compels me. We are, as, as a whole, those people that don't practice the same thing. We don't get into a tradition that's a, a good and honoring tradition. We do buy in traditions, but often not good ones. And when we get into those traditions, if there's any roadblocks or anything that comes in the way, what do we do? We abandon it. We don't keep doing it. Whereas these guys, they are relentless. They hit, they go. They see Jews and what's it cause them? Trouble. But what do they do? They do it anyway. See, they understood the word of God. They trusted the word of God. They knew that God did have a plan for Israel. They didn't know when Israel was going to finally embrace their Messiah. I don't Paul's thinking And I believe the uh, the, the missionaries all along from the beginning of Acts are looking for the coming of the kingdom and the restoration of Israel. We saw that in one, right? So everywhere they go, okay, maybe it's time. Maybe they're going to buy it. And every time they go, they get what? Beat up and treated bad. Rejection. I don't know about you, but once I get hit a couple times, I think, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'll change that tradition or custom. I'll go with a different pattern. How about you? But he was resolved. It didn't matter. I, yep, I'm going to talk to the Jews. Are you a fool? Why don't you start with the Gentiles? They'll get it. But Israel is called in our, passage, our Old Testament passage the apple of God's eye in Zechariah 2.8. So God was not through with the Jews even though the majority were rejecting him. Now, it becomes more and more apparent as we walk through Acts that Israel as a whole was rejecting their Messiah. But Paul remained faithful to his custom and God's divine will. And this commitment to the pattern of the Jews first meant extraordinary amounts of suffering. In 2 Corinthians 11.23, it says, He was five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I don't know about you guys, but the first time would have been enough for me. And I'm like, y'all can, hey, God's forgot you. I would have been con- covenantal for sure at that moment. I would have been thinking, nope, the church replaced. Forget it. You're dead. God divorced you. Get out of here. I, give me the nations. You yeah, understand I'm talking, uh, what would that be? Uh, huh? Sarcastically. Thank you. I couldn't think of the word sarcastically. But what's he do? He keeps going. Keeps going to them. Why? Because he knew what he was going to write in Romans 11, that God did have a plan for him eventually. And he was trying to provoke them to jealousy. And we're going to actually see that they do that. Very interesting. At the same time, as we will see, Paul didn't just tell them what they wanted to hear. Paul's custom was costly because he was confrontational. He didn't go into them and say... Well, I got good news for you. Your Messiah's come and it's really all about you. He would say, No, the Messiah's coming. It's all about everyone. Even the nations are coming. And that made him mad. He said, Get over yourself, in effect. Boy, can you imagine going into a church and the first sermon you had? You walk in and you say, Y'all have a problem with pride. You need to get over yourself. Gentiles, Jesus is for you too. And they go, let's kill this guy. And that's what he did. He was confrontational. The ambassadors were given only a short amount of time in this place, as we see. And for three Sabbaths reasoned with them. I don't think you can tie the and there as uh, it was his custom to do it for three Sabbaths. Some have taken that advance but I, I think that it's just saying how long he was there because the way this is worded compared to the other places in Acts. Paul was in Philippi uh, for many days, Acts 16:18. Paul stayed in Corinth many days, Acts 18:18. 18, 18. Paul was in Ephesus for more than two years as Acts 19:10 states. I think he brings up, and I think Luke brings up the three Sabbaths for the purpose of saying he was there for just a short time. It was only there before the opposition arose for a short time. So this church was, was taught by the Apostle Paul for roughly three weeks or a little more. We don't know exactly how long, but it was not a long time. One thing has always intrigued me about this church. Look back over at First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians this church plant that appears to have had the missionary Paul for only a short period of time, only trained for three, four, maybe a couple weeks past that, five, six weeks. Look how Paul describes them in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith towards God has gone forth. So that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Oh, folks, I want that to describe our church plant of 10 years. How about you? But these people had teaching for roughly a month or two at the most. And here they're described as those that their faith has gone out. And that people were hearing of the apostles' arrival at their place and how they had received them from other places. And that they turned from gods, or from their idols to serve the tr- living and true God. This is intriguing, isn't it? What it shows me is, is that when God gets a hold of a heart, it's for real. When God really converts a heart, people don't abandon the faith. If they're really converted, they love God. You know, y'all seen these before, where you have the baptisms and the people get baptized and then you don't see them again for months. You wonder what happened. You Maybe some of y'all have been at churches like that, where you have those baptism services and you have hundreds of people come forward and they all... Get baptized, and then two weeks later, half the people that were there weren't aren't even in church anymore. Maybe it's because they weren't really converted. I think when we're converted, we turn from idols to serve the true and living God. It's very clear. This is what happens in Thessalonica. The ambassadors, also the setting, were self-supported in order to not be a burden. You say, "Well, where's that in Acts 17?" It's not. Look at First Thessalonians two nine. Again, the details are given by Paul. He states in 2.9, For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you. What were these guys? What were these missionaries? These were uh, workers during the day. They were tent makers during the day, and then they would teach at night. They did this to provide for themselves. So what we have is the setting of the gospel to be revealed in Thessalonica, and it included beaten and weary ambassadors, consistent and dedicated missionaries, sacrificial disciple makers, and as we will see, ambassadors ministering in a hostile environment. I just want to encourage some of you, the, the believers in this place. Maybe there's some of you who are weary of the pains of the world. Would that describe any of you today? Maybe you have been insulted or persecuted from various people you have come in contact with. My exhortation to you is this. Come weary pilgrim. Let's keep pursuing the glory of our king together. We must continue to be consistent in our proclamation of the king. We must not fear the evil one and his followers. We must also remain disciplined in our pursuit of holiness and proclaiming his name. Oh, folks, we need to be this. We need to be like these missionaries. Resolved, committed, dedicated, sacrificial, humble, pursuing God always. Come on, y'all can do it. I want to encourage you. Keep going. Don't give up. Our setting may not be exactly the same as theirs, but the heart of all ambassadors must be the same. We must be pursuing Christ always. We press on to lay hold of that upward call of Christ Jesus, don't we? We press on to share Him even in a world that predominantly hates Him. And we press on despite the obstacles that lie in our way. The enemy is always opposing us. We resolve to remain on in our Lord's way. I have been so very encouraged by my read through the pilgrim's progress again all of you should read it i strongly advise you just to see how they, the christian has certain people that god brings into his life throughout the journey to kind of encourage him keep going and they lean on each other keep going and they hit another battle and keep going it reminds me of how christian engaged his friend and he he said in the to his friend hopeful in the book he says where am i at there it is Let's not take one step off the way to wander from the path, but instead let us stay true to our way. That's what we have to do. We've got to encourage each other. Keep going. Keep going. I want to encourage you today. Keep going. Don't give up. Some of you are weary. Some of you have been hit, and you've fallen down. You've messed up. Don't give up. Keep going. That's my exhortation to you today. Just like these missionaries... You might be facing struggles. Keep going. Don't give up. Please. The Lord is worth it. Pursue Him. No matter what setting you are in, you must resolve to stay on the path like these ambassadors for Christ did in Acts 17. This means the gospel will be revealed through us and from us no matter what comes into our life. Keep going. So the next element of the gospel revealed, we see our passage. In our passage, is the method for the gospel to be revealed. The method for the gospel to be revealed. Ultimately, back in Acts 17, the biblical method for revealing the gospel is the discipleship-making process. It is more than just saying truth. Revealing the gospel involves more than just knowing a fa- the facts about the gospel. It involves more than just proclaiming a sermon on the five elements of the gospel. It involves more than these things. It involves living it too. The gospel revealed is making disciples of Christ. In this passage, we see some of the features of making disciples. In our passage, look in Acts 17, 1 through 4. Let's look at how they... are involved in making disciples. Making disciples involves reasoning with people from the Word. Notice it says, they reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The ambassadors for the king reasoned from the authority of their master, the Scriptures. In the same way, whether we are attempting to make disciples, the question of authority must be raised. Listen to me closely, folks. What is the authority in a person's life? We, have, we all have opinions, but one only one opinion is the standard by which all other opinions are judged. This week, as we were evangelizing on campus, we, were, we engaged many students who had opinions of religion. We even had people come to our Bible study that night. They showed up that had some radically different views and ideas concerning the one true God. But just like Paul... We attempted to reason with the students from the scriptures. The king has given us his authoritative word. This is what Paul uses to reason with people. And this is what we should reason with from also. It's important to note that this doesn't just mean handing down edicts or pronouncing judgments. Paul engaged his audience. He did not just yell at them. He reasoned with them. He conversed, discussed with them the scriptures. There was a dialogue, not just a speech. Oh, I think we fall into this in our evangelism. We think it's just us speaking to a person instead of dialoguing with the person. I often don't think that we do evangelism the way the Bible says to do it. We just beat people with the Bible and then walk away. That is not evangelism. That is not biblical evangelism. Biblical evangelism is reasoning with people, talking, dialoguing with them. You know, in some ways, it's a lot easier to stand up and yell at a person than it is to talk with them. I think this takes humility. This takes engaging people, listening to people. Often, reasoning with people takes much more dedication and patience than preaching a sermon. It is often relatively easy to pronounce the truth. Look, folks, I got up here, I worked on this, I wrote it down. I'm just preaching. Y'all aren't arguing with me. It's a lot harder when you come up to me afterwards and say, Well, I'm not sure if I agree with that point. Because at that point, my pride goes whoop. Very easy for me to go, Who are you to question me? I studied this for 40 hours this week. Are you telling me that you've got it all figured out better than I do? That's not reasoning with the Scriptures, though. That's my pride, isn't it? I think sermons are a wonderful thing. I love preaching the Bible. I think it's what we're supposed to do. But, boy, it's it's a whole other thing to engage people when they don't agree with you and to reason with them from the scripture. I had a guy call me this week. I've heard his voice before. He calls on his lunch break just to argue. He said, I had a little bit of time on my break, and I wanted to call and engage you with your false doctrine of the Trinity. I'm like, oh, boy, this is going to be fun. <laughs> I think I remember you called once before. I told him that. And he said, well, either way, I'm here to talk to you now. He said, well, your attitude wasn't that you really wanted to learn or listen or talk or really engage. You just wanted to blast me. But if you want to try again, let's go for it. Before I knew it, he was in a screaming match with me. Not me screaming at him, but he was screaming at me on the phone. You're just a heretic calling me names. And I was like, wow, wow. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to explain the verse that you brought up. Let's go back to John 17. Can we keep working through it? No, I'm not going to cast pearls before swine anymore. And he hung up on me. (laughs) Out. And then I thought immediately, Wow, (laughs) thank you, Lord. I got just a little glimpse of what these guys on the mission field got all the time, wherever they went. I don't get any of this. This is... Y'all are easy. Do you understand being your pastor is great? Most of the time you don't argue with me at all. That doesn't mean start, please. (laughs) But folks, reasoning from the scriptures is a whole other level of Christian love. It's listening. It's being sacrificial. It's being humble. And it involves risk, doesn't it? It involves the possibility of being asked a question that you're stumped by. It involves the possibility of being rejected or opposed. It involves humility and self-control, which self-control is not something that we all are real good at, right? Beloved, we must stand on the authority of the Scriptures. We must reason from them. We must avoid worldly philosophies. Real simple, it says from the scriptures. It doesn't say from Plato or Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. By the way, all of those were just human philosophers and heretics, in my opinion. It is best to follow the example of the Apostle Paul and the missionaries, not the worldly philosophies of men. Notice the second feature of sharing the gospel and making disciples is shown by the missionaries. Making disciples involves exposing people to the word explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. This word explaining means to open up the meaning or to give a proper interpretation. You know, that's what we do with expository preaching. My, uh, my goal is, is for you to understand what the passage says, to explain what its meaning and its original context is. That's why we do line-by-line, verse-by-verse preaching. The goal is to keep it in this context so that you know exactly what the Bible says in its original intent of the author. We emphasize this expository preaching at our church. We also emphasize expository teaching with our classes. But here's a new one for you, expository reasoning or expository evangelizing. Friends, as we have a responsibility to share the Word, we must explain the Word. We must explain the Word accurately. This means we need to know the Word. We need to study the Word. We need to understand it. And then we need to apply it to our hearts so that sin does not misdirect us. We need to be willing to humbly look at our own presuppositions and see if we're interpreting the Scriptures the way we want them to be told. I'll tell you what, evangelism and and proclaiming the gospel is one of the places where I have found that people butcher the word more than any other place. You know why? Because they're using verses to make their point. Often they are trying to make a point and they just take whatever they can think of and throw it out there to try to win the argument. Well, folks, I think we need to be... A better students of the word. And when we explain the word to people, even in evangelism, we need to make sure that what we say is what it says and what it really means. We need to be expository evangelists. Notice also the disciples were giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again. Some have accused me of being a, a fedius That's F-I-D-E-I-S-T or is it I-E-S-T? E-I-S-T. In my apologetics, a fideist has a negative definition and a positive one. Some say fideist is someone who denies reason or logic for faith in God. In other words, just believe. It might not make sense. Just believe. That's what people say a fideist is. I'm definitely not one of these kind of fideists. But if we define fideist as its strictest definition, which means faith or trust, someone who trusts or believes in Christ, even above what the world considers reasonable or logical, that's me. Because don't you understand that the gospel is foolishness to the world? And that's what all believers are, right? So how do we say, if the gospel is foolishness to the world, how do we reason with somebody of the world using human logic? If we use human logic or worldly philosophies and tell them, the, the gospel, it's foolishness to them. You can't logic or reason a person with human logic to foolishness. They're just going to keep saying, you're a fool. So what do we reason from? We reason from the only thing that is objective and true, perfectly. The scriptures. That's what we do. And that's what they're doing here. They're giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer And rise again. That's tied back to the previous concept of reasoning with them from the scriptures. So when we're talking to somebody and they say, I don't believe in Jesus. You say, well, that's really sad. I wish you would. I pray that you will. Let me reason with you from the scriptures. And they say, well, I don't believe in that book. Well, I know you don't believe in that book because the Bible says that you won't believe in this book unless God works in your heart. Because you're dead in your sin. That's what the Bible says. And again, the authority is not the Bible, not me. It's not because I think you're a fool. It's because the Bible says you're a fool. You don't have to say it quite that harshly. So what do we trust in? We trust in the objective revelation of God found in the scriptures. And that's what we give evidence from. We trust in God as revealed in the Bible. Faith is above reason, as Dr. Zimmick states. So where does faith come from? Well, real simple. Faith comes from God. It's a byproduct of God's special revelation. God gives faith, and he uses his word to produce faith. How many of you say I've said this phrase before and I just want to encourage you even after you're a believer you say I believe help my unbelief. You ever said that? Okay. I've got the solution for your unbelief. See the scriptures produce faith. It's the byproduct of faith. The more you study it the more you memorize it the more you meditate on it it's the very thing that God uses to build your faith. This is how we get saved and it's how we're Saved to the end. So where does it come from? It comes from God, and it comes as a byproduct of the Word of God, and that's what they do. They reason from the Scriptures. You say, well, what about Acts 17 when he's at Athens? Does he use the Scriptures? I would say yes, and we'll talk about that. He doesn't quote verse or or section because the people didn't know it, but he's using the same Scriptural truths as he speaks to them, and we'll see it as we go through it so we give evidence of god from his word his special revelation folks i don't know about you we don't evidences from other places ultimately don't do anything and the reason why is because it's not the special revelation of god general revelation condemns we all know this romans 1 correct everybody knows there is a god anyway but what happens is this general revelation All it does is the human heart says, I don't want that. And I don't believe in that God. And I come up with a God in my own mind. So what is the thing that converts those scriptures and scriptures alone? Why? Because general revelation doesn't save, but special revelation does. So again, we must study the scriptures. We must know the Bible. We must memorize the word. And we must meditate on it, understand it, apply it, and then speak it. So here's my question for you. Are you an expository communicator? Are you an expository communicator? Do you speak the word? Do you listen to the word? Do you share the word? Now, again, folks, how often should you be doing this? All the time? That sounds very harsh. Some of you in the room are saying, what? You talk about the Bible all the time? Everything is goes through those presuppositions, the scriptures. Everything. All of our thoughts. How we act in our workplace. What we say to our workplace our, our co workers. I guess we could add, we are we an expository Christians or are we expository Christians? Say, what in the world is an expository Christian? An expository Christian is a person that lives the Word so that people see the meaning of it lived out in their life. Does your life look like what the gospel does to believers? If you show off what a changed heart looks like, what you're doing is revealing the scriptures through your life. I think that's what we're supposed to be about. Do we live in a way that gives evidence of the power of the gospel that changes lives? I'm not sure that we do it all the time. But I'm positive this. The missionaries ate, drank, and slept the gospel 24-7. And what happened? They, wow, look at the world. As we're going through Acts, everywhere they go, people are coming to Christ. They delighted in the gospel all the time and therefore they lived the gospel of Jesus death, burial and resurrection all the time. The next feature is making disciples involves showing how the prophetic word is fulfilled. It says giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Here we see that the missionaries did what the missionaries did was poor put forth proof that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. What's this mean? Well, it means that the Old Testament scriptures told of this suffering death of the Messiah. And guess what? They did. They also told of his resurrection. The Old Testament gives us plenty of examples that God would become a man, live a perfect life, then die as an atonement for his people, then rise from the dead. The evidence was powerful and persuasive. I think that that is one of the greatest uh, convent, uh, one of the greatest things that convinces people of the gospel and the glory of the gospel is that, that God makes a promise and then hundreds of years later he does it exactly like he'd said. Listen, nobody gets that. Nobody can tell what's going to happen tomorrow with precision. But God did. For thousands of years he said as Messiah is coming, a Christ is coming and he's going to die. And guess what? It happened. One of the clearest evidences of this is from Isaiah 53, right? You can't read that and not go, Wow, God. 700 years before, great detail, and then it happens. But there's many more. Genesis 3.15, Genesis 22, Genesis 49. How about the Passover sacrifice of Exodus? Doesn't that scream that there had to be a sacrifice to pass over and keep them from judgment? The persecuted one of Psalm 22. Or how about Daniel 9, the one who would be cut off. The stone which the builders rejected of Psalm 118. This is just mentioning a few. But they're everywhere. Can't you just see Paul sitting there, opening up the Word, opening up the Old Testament Scriptures and saying, Here is the suffering Christ. Here is the victorious Christ. Here he had to die. He was guaranteed to rise. He will return. And he took it all from the Old Testament Scriptures. They didn't have the Gospels at this time. They reasoned from the Scriptures. So making disciples involves reasoning from the Word, exposing people to the Word, and giving evidence from the Word. And last we see, making disciples involves boldly proclaiming the Word. I love this little phrase. This Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Oh, man, we can't, I can't, I need to give you a better translation, a more literal one. Listen to this. This one is the Christ, Jesus, whom I myself am proclaiming to you. I mean, it is emphatic as all uh, emphasis can be made. This line is so anti-postmodern, however. Paul didn't try, he didn't say something like this. And boy, this is what we hear in our, ooh, in our postmodern culture and the way that they present the gospel. They say things like this. Try Jesus. He won't let you down. Hugwash! Try Jesus? Like you can try him for a little bit and then try somebody else? Are you kidding me? Or how about this one? This Jesus is worth considering. He may be the one. What? He is the one. Repent or you will face him on judgment day. He's the Christ. Why don't you just consider Jesus? Consider him? No. Repent. Bow the knee to Jesus. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. We need to stand up. What do you think? I think we need to be a little bit more clear with the gospel. What do you think? I think somebody needs to stand up and finally say, Hey, you know, there's only one way. And if not, you're going to hell. This is what Paul said. This Christ, whom I'm proclaiming to you, I myself, me, he's the one. Repent. In one sentence, we're given a glimpse into Paul's boldness that he spoke with. He alludes to this boldness in his letter. Look at 1 Thessalonians again. 1 Thessalonians 2.2. 2. It says, And you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. He had boldness to in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Then verse 9 to 12, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and so is God how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you, each one of you as a father would his own child or his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You know, there's some real truth to this. When you look at a father-son relationship, a father-child relationship, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a little bit more direct with my children than I am with you. just being perfectly honest. I say, look, dad says get up and come here. Guess what? That means you better get up and come here. Why? Because I'm the authority and I say, do it. And you do it. And if you don't, there could be consequences. Now, when I say to you, get up and come to here, I'm not saying, hey. I usually am a little bit more, uh, what do you say, politically correct, for lack of a better term. Try to be a little bit more, oh, come on, please. Paul didn't do that often. He said, get up, follow Jesus. He's the one. I think we need to be more direct. What do you think? But here's the problem. We are a bunch of wimpy people. We got a bunch of wimpy people in our country. I'm just being perfectly honest. And we might even have some wimpy people in this audience. I'm sorry to tell you. If somebody tells you what to do, do you get offended by that? If somebody says, hey, you're out of line. do you? Oh, your whole world falls apart. Well, you don't really like me. We need to get over ourselves, don't we? If somebody says, hey, you're, you're speaking out of line. I, I, again, I am reading through Pilgrim's Progress. It's amazing. Christians talking to people, hey, you know, you're half-hearted. You're going to die and go to hell. I mean, the way he talks to the characters and the characters are talking to themselves, nothing like us. We always have to coddle each other. He didn't do that. We need to get a little thicker skin, don't we? I know some of you in the room are like, man, this is coming from Mr. Grace, the guy that's always gentle and kind to me. I know. I try to be very gracious and kind, but sometimes we just need to be told what to do and we need to just own it and do it. I don't need to give you ten reasons why you should follow Jesus every single time. Right? Sometimes it's because he's Lord. Obey him. This is what we get from Paul. I think this is some of the reason why John Mark went the other way. To a degree, it was like, hey, let's tell the truth. Get over ourselves." They were gospel-focused missionaries. They were gospel-exalting missionaries. They were gospel-motivated, and they were gospel-saturated. It was all Jesus all the time, and we need to be the same way. What do you think? And finally, we see the response to the gospel being revealed. You say, well, boy, we're never going to get through this passage. You're exactly right, and that's okay. (laughs) It's all right. Are you learning something about? I hope you're getting something from the Word. The response of the gospel being revealed, people are convinced. I love that word. Some of them were persuaded along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of Gentiles. Some of them were persuaded. I love this word persuaded. At first, some of us who are Calvinistic in the room take a look and say, Wait a second, persuaded? Those that don't know what Calvinism is, all you got to do is look to the left and ask the guy next to you. (laughs) Afterwards. So true about our church, isn't it? Doesn't Luke mean converted? Doesn't he mean saved? Doesn't he mean regenerated? Doesn't he mean born again? Why does he say persuaded? This doesn't contradict God's role in salvation, folks. It just means that God's converting work is accomplished through a human's will. When we are converted to Christ, we don't go kicking and screaming. Okay? When we are truly converted to Christ, we go, yes, I want him. Our heart doesn't go, "Mm, not sure yet still. I think I'll wait. Maybe. He might be the one. No, when you're really converted, you're what? Persuaded. Your will said yes to Christ. Now, again, persuasion doesn't mean the Armenian false teaching is true. No one is persuaded the gospel without God's sovereign grace at work in the person. Just like Lydia opened the heart, people aren't persuaded unless God's working. The two don't contradict. They work in what? Perfect harmony, unity. Literally, some of the people were caused to come to a particular point of view. They were convinced of the gospel. They were won over to the truth of the gospel. So as much as we used to rail, as some of us Calvinists have railed against soul winning, I need to tell you, there is a little bit of truth to soul winning. <gasps> oh, no. No, there's conversion. There's persuasion. And that's what we're doing. God works sovereignly through us and through our will to cause us to be persuaded. They were convinced of the gospel. Again, these new converts are described. How well were they conversed, uh, uh, convinced? Well, real clear. It says, "For this reason, we also constantly thank God that you were you received the word, which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word from men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe." These people didn't say. They agreed with the facts of the gospel. They were radically persuaded and saved. And what did they do? They aligned themselves, as we see in our passage in verse 4, with the believers. They joined Paul and Silas. And we'll close with this once again. This literally means that because they became closely associated with the missionaries, they joined with Paul and Silas. They were attached to the mission and the purpose of the gospel. Again, look at this radical change of nature for these converts in 1, 6 to 7. And ask yourself this question. Does this describe you? Does this describe you? You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all who believe in Macedonia and Achaia, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Oh, folks, this is the power of gospel on display. This is what it looks like. Idol worshipers turn to to serve the living and true God. These believers were so legit that their faith was spreading out all over the world. How about us? (laughs) Let's just describe us. Does our neighbors know that we love God? And we serve the true and living God. Do our friends understand this? Do do our spouses see Christ lived out in us in the way that we talk? Are we bold? Are we courageous? Folks, this is what we want to be like, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the power of the gospel that saves. Lord, I know that In a crowd this size very easily there could be people that have not turned to you yet. We cry out to you, Lord, for you to save them, cause them to see their own sin and their need of a Savior. I pray, Lord, that you will cause them to see the glory of the gospel. Please, Lord, open their hearts to see the glory of Christ and what he has done for them. At the same time, Lord, we pray that you will increase our faith. And we know that it's by your spirit work through the word. So help us to be disciplined. Help us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Help us to be those that pursue godliness through discipline. May we pray and may we pursue you and may we seek you in your word constantly. Oh, Lord, help us to be a people that will persevere to the end. We love you, Father. We thank you for your grace, and we commit this to Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.